0: Their party happening out there? Can you chase him in, Jerry? Tell him to be quiet, anyways. <laughs> <laughs> is that what it is? Yeah. The pig's talking out there still. It's distracting me. Oh, okay. Well, the pig on the coffee bar. <laughs> the, the, did you guys see it? Candace says, do you want to bring that up there? I said, oh, I don't know. <laughs> it goes oink, oink, apparently, the little piggy up there. So right on. Hey, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you can turn there with me. And uh, Sharon just uh, shared with me a prayer request. Her sister-in-law has just been diagnosed with cancer. Did you say stage four? No, no sorry. Yeah. Okay. 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 We'll just, we'll just pray for her this morning. And pray as we come to God's word. Lord Jesus, we just uh, thank you for this, this great day that we have together to hang out most of the day and uh, to worship, Lord, to gather around your word, to be able to pray, eat together later today, Lord. And um, God, I just want, want to lift up Sharon's sister-in-law to you. And uh, we, just, we just pray, God, in this situation where she's just been diagnosed with cancer, Lord, we ask that you would work in the midst of uh, her body, Lord, in her life, in their family. We ask you, God, to heal her in the name of Jesus. We pray, God, that um, she would just take great hope and strength and encouragement um, from you, Lord. And I thank you that the family is trusting you uh, for her future and for her healing. And so, Lord, we just agree with them this morning. We commit her into your hands in the name of Jesus. And, Lord, I thank you that we can uh, gather around uh, the Word of God this morning. And we ask, God, that you would speak to us, that, that you would speak to each one of our hearts and our lives. We ask, God, that your Holy Spirit would, would make the Word of God just alive to us. We ask, God, that you would give us uh, soft hearts this morning to receive the seed of your word. And I pray, God, uh, for just revelation for us, for a spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know you better. And so, God, uh, we pray for the unction and the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit as the the word of God is taught this morning. We just commit this time in your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. First Corinthians chapter 6. For those of you who are, are visiting or haven't been here in the last little while, we've been we've been going through this series through First Corinthians, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and um, Paul has been teaching a church that's immature and trying to live in the world and in the midst of the culture, um, just about her identity in in Christ, pointing the church to the the central fact of the cross and the message of Jesus and. The cross is a solution for every issue that man has, and and Paul, in that message, addressing issues in the in the church, and we saw last week that he began to get into some moral things that were happening, and he's going to sort of stay on that theme this morning, uh, continuing this subject of discipline in the church. Um, not only in, not only was the church in in Corinth like known for its loose morals. Um, but they were, they were also known for filing meaningless lawsuits, which seems like a weird thing, against each other. Uh, and so let's check this out. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, it says this. When one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare go to the law before the law Sorry, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge the angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases... Why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Interesting. He says, don't you know you're going to judge the world? Don't you know? Actually, six times Paul's going to say this in this chapter. Do you not know? Do you not know you're going to judge the world? Do you not know that you're even going to judge the angels? Revelation chapter 20 tells us that At the end of the great tribulation, when Jesus Christ returns and the church that has been raptured, the saints glorified, return with him to the earth, there will be a whole new situation on the world that's kind of hard to comprehend. It will look like this, sort of. I don't know, as much as we can understand it. That those who survived the great tribulation, Gentiles and Jews, will continue to live on the earth. They will be living in their natural fleshly bodies like you and I have right now. But Christ will come and the earth will be restored. It will begin to once again be um, like it was in the Garden of Eden. It will flourish. And while there be people living in their natural bodies, the saints, the church that was raptured, will have returned with Christ and they will be living in their glorified bodies resurrected bodies so you get this crazy situation this fascinating situation on the earth where jesus christ is physically ruling and reigning he will have a throne that will be set up in jerusalem and he will rule over the whole earth the scripture says with a rod of iron for a period of a thousand years it's called the millennial reign of christ and uh God's people that are with him, his glorified people, those who have been resurrected, will enforce upon the earth the righteous rule of Jesus Christ. And so across the earth, there will be what we desire now, peace. There'll be harmony because the king will be in his rightful place on his throne with his saints enforcing his kingdom. And there'll be there'll be justice, peace, and harmony. You know, you... You won't be worried about your kids in the education system. You know, you, you, you won't be worried about the injustices of our legal system. All those sorts of things. You know, you won't be worried about corruption and politics or the bias of the media because Jesus Christ will rule and his rule will be enforced on the face of the earth. And so, you know, just imagine a moment, just kind of fun. Millions, tens of millions, I don't know, glorified saints in their resurrected body. And some kid goes into Mike's place and he decides he's going to lift a bag of penny candy. The saints arrive. They say, no, son. This is a time of peace and justice and harmony on the earth where the whole world serves Jesus. Put it back. And he puts it back. That's going to be the scene. That's going to be the role of the saints. And so Paul says, you're going you're gonna to judge the world. You're going to judge, judge um, the angels even. You will see that righteousness is enforced in the earth. And in Corinth, this church had all these sorts of petty issues going on. We don't even know what they, they were. Uh, lawsuits happening between the people and making a bad name for the gospel. You know, uh, about three years back, I went to a pastor's conference Uh, our, Our annual senior pastors conference happens in California and we had a session where they brought in a legal expert on legalities in the church, the handling of your staff, having proper church policy. Why? Because Christians sue each other, often over petty things and and the, the issue was, learn to do your policies right. Learn to look after your employees. Do what is legal and what is right and honor your employees. But also know that this happens. It happens. And in, in Corinth, it was off the charts. And so Paul says, don't you know that you're going you're gonna to judge the world? That means, you know, you're going you're gonna to be in the place where you will pronounce um, decisions regarding what right and wrong is. You will rule. You will govern. You will preside over the earth with power. You will judge the angels, which is crazy. You know, I don't even know what that means. What what does that mean? I wish I could explain that to you. You know what the scripture says? It says this. When it speaks of man and the angels, it says that God made man a little lower than the angels. But somehow in the future, that role will be reversed. Man will rise to a a new place in God's order of things, and man will rule over the will. Will pronounce judgment over the angels. You know, maybe likely it will look like this. You know, you think of the angels who rebelled against God with Satan. Uh, the Scripture alludes to the fact that a third of the heavenly angels rebelled with Satan against against the Lord. And you know, maybe it will be the role of the saints to say, "How could you have rebelled against God?" You were in his presence daily. You saw him. We didn't physically see him. We, we didn't get have the opportunity to go before the, th- the throne of God in heaven in a physical sense. And yet we believed. And you had all these opportunities and you didn't. And maybe God will place us in this spot where um, we'll judge the angels. And so... Paul makes this contrast. You're going to judge the earth. You're going to judge the angels. How much more should you be able to make decisions, judgments pertaining to small things in the church, pertaining to things in this life? You know, he says, even the person who is least esteemed, least respected in your midst as a church should be able to make a judgment about these things, a better decision than your own legal system can do, he says. It says in verse 5, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you who is wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and, therefore, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. He says, shouldn't you, shouldn't you be ashamed? <laughs> you know, he's pointing them to the shame of this whole thing, that there's no one wise enough in the church for them to settle little disputes that were happening among them. And instead, they, they take it before unbelievers, people who don't trust God, people who don't know God, and they leave it in their hands to make decisions. Now, of course, Paul here is talking about believer and believer. Not believer and unbeliever, unbeliever, unbeliever. He's talking about two people in the church that are in the same church together. Work it out. You know, whenever I, I think about this, I'm reminded of my grandpa, Pop. I called him Pop. And uh, Pop was uh, a fabricator, a welder designed truck bodies. He was really skilled and really gifted at that. He designed armored cars and designed uh, systems for locking, locking those vehicles up so they were safe. And he started fabricating in Vancouver, and he had a partner, a good Christian man. My grandpa's name was Lang. That, that man's last name was Ford, and they formed Langford Truck Company. Don't know if I would make the full connection to the one that you're familiar with, but possibly. I was kind of not sure about that in the story. I should have clarified that with my mom. But uh, Mister, his, his partner uh, got sick, and I think it was cancer. He was going to pass away. And so they decided they'd bring a third partner into the business. My grandpa was the designer, fabricator sort of guy, and they needed financial help. And so they brought in another Christian brother to help them financially operate the business. Grandpa had laid out his designs and had his things and was building and selling and doing well. He was into his 50s. He hadn't, you know, uh, put patents on his designs and things like that. And that business partner began to swindle the business out from underneath them, secretly, until one day, up and moved out of Vancouver and it was gone and grandpa was left with nothing. And my grandpa made this decision. I'm a believer and I'm not going to sue that man. He, he's, he chose to honor what Paul was talking about here, understanding that it would be better that he suffer wrong uh, and it would be better that he trust God to look after him than to drag such a matter believer against believer through the court system and drag the gospel through the midst of it. And so he made that decision. It changed his future. He had a much more humble life, but he was a godly man. I mean, I could, I could tell you uh, about a little bit more about that, but all I can, I, what I would say is this, is as a kid I always stood in awe of the fact that he made that decision. I stand here today and can honor him before you because of that decision. And God honored him. God looked after him. He never went without. And the gospel was honored. And Paul says this idea here, you know, to have lawsuits amongst yourselves as believers, it's a defeat for you. It's a defeat for the gospel. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? You know, Jesus in that great sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5 taught his disciples, he taught the crowd. If someone slaps you in the on the right side of the cheek, turn the left cheek as well. If one would sue you to take your tunic, then give him your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go a mile, then go with him too. See, ra- rather than... Go through all the legal troubles to get justice and to defend yourself and in the process, drag the gospel through the mud, make the church look bad, make Jesus look bad. The better way is to trust the Lord to look after you and to see that he will bring forth justice. And so when it's believer against believer, uh, Paul gives us some real clear direction here. He says in verse 9, Do you not know, there it is again, do you not know, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? You know, there's a great hope a hope for you when you experience unrighteousness against you. Say, well, God, I have been unjustly treated, and in your word it says, the righteous will not inherit the kingdom. I don't know what you're planning, I don't know what you're doing, but I trust you for righteousness in my life. Verse 9, You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Third time, Paul says this, do you not know? And he says this, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, in Corinth, there were people fooling themselves. They were living in, you know, I've made this comparison to Vegas, Vegas on steroids in Corinth, Uh, They were living in this city that was gripped in immorality and they were fooling themselves to thinking that they themselves as followers of Christ could live in immorality and still be Christians. And Paul made it clear that such people will not inherit the kingdom of God. Not my words, Paul's words. He says it right there, so clear. He says that stuff's part of your past. It's part of the old life. You were washed You were sanctified, you were justified in Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. And if you are God's child, essentially he's saying, God will clean up your life. Don't fool yourself. And he and he says very strong words here in verse nine. Do not be deceived. Self-deception. Something very powerful. Do not be deceived. It means do not be led into error. Do not be led away from the truth. Do not be seduced from the narrow path. And the first thing he says is that sexual immorality threatens the security of your salvation. You are not on solid ground in Christ Jesus if you are living in sexual immorality. Now that doesn't mean, you know, someone who slipped up, because people slip up. Doesn't mean someone who fell into sexual sexual immorality is not going to make it into heaven. Paul is not talking about struggling with such things; he's talking about those who flagrantly and blatantly continue in them. He said they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Um, it's interesting. He gives the whole list here: sexual immorality. The Greek word is pornos. Uh, idolaters. It's interesting as he lists this this group of. Uh, sexual, this group of sexual sins against the Lord, he, he lumps idolatry in there right in the midst of it because sexual sin is ultimately idolatry. Sexual immorality, idolatry, the adulterer, uh, men who practice homosexuality. In the Greek original language, there's two words for that. If we were to look at the original this morning in our English, it just translates homosexuality. In Greek, there's two words, and it means to be passive and to be actively involved in homosexual practice. And the the reality of what he is saying here is this, is that involvement in sexual immorality will lead to insecurity with Jesus Christ for you. You know, and, and we could argue, well, are you saying someone could lose their salvation? Or others might say, Well, they were never saved. Look it. It doesn't matter. Can they lose their salvation or were they never really saved? The end is the same, is it not? The end is the same. Either way, they end up in the same place. And this passage to me is just uncomfortably clear. Those who continue in these sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so Paul begins to speak about this to the church. In fact, in verse 10, he lists other things. Thieves, embezzlers, I bet my grandpa trusted in that one. Those who steal or misappropriate money. The greedy. Those who are eager to have more of what belongs to others and who are covetous, drunkards, revilers. We talked about reviler last week. Someone who's a character assassin. Swindlers who who practice extortion. And again, Paul is saying that those who habitually practice these things either... Uh, never were saved, or they have greatly compromised their salvation to the point that they are in absolute grave danger and they need to know it. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. I was thinking about just inheriting the kingdom of God. You know, children typically receive an inheritance from their parents. And an inheritance... In heaven is what we have as children of God. And and Paul's saying here that when these sins that he lists are unchecked and they're uncontrolled and they're unrepentantly practiced, that should tell you something about your birth. It should tell you whether you should have an inheritance or not have an inheritance. It should say, I'm in the family of God or I'm not in the family of God. See, these are, this is an issue of inheritance, and these things pertain to your birthright in Christ. And so Paul says this, and to this group, he says, Such were some of you, past tense. That's what you once were. Recognize your identity as a child of God. You know, before Jesus, I was in the gutter of sin. Christ clothed us in the robes of righteousness. We were swimming in the sewer of our transgression and we thought it was fun. And then the Holy Spirit revealed to us our separation from God and our need for forgiveness through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, But, but you were, you were that and now you're this. You were washed you were sanctified, you were justified, you were washed. Remember that? Remember when Jesus washed you? In the fountain of his love, you experienced the reality of that and the sense of his presence, his grace, his forgiveness overflowed to you. You followed him into the waters of baptism and you buried the old man and the new man was raised to life and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. A new creation. Part of the family of God. And guess what? You've got an inheritance coming from your father. Paul says you were sanctified. That means God, when he did that, he separated you from profane things. He dedicated you to the purposes of God. He rendered you venerable, meaning that he... He took your life and he accorded to you something that you did not have before. He made you holy. He he, uh, bestowed upon you respect because of your relationship with Jesus. Because God is your father. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified, which means he made you righteous. You were declared just in God's court of law. Though I was guilty of sin because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross and by faith in him, I was declared just, justified in the name of Jesus. He says, you you were washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the spirit of God. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Lord It means master. It means ruler. It means now when I call him Lord that I belong to him. That he holds the power over my life. That he holds the title deed to my life. He is God. And I'm called to be his. The name of Jesus Christ. Paul says you were justified by that name and by the spirit of God. Paul's going to, I want to pause here for a second because he's going to start to talk about the spirit in a a few verses up ahead here. The word spirit in Greek is pneuma. In Hebrew, it's ruach. It it means breath or wind. Uh, Jesus spoke of the man of the spirit. He says he's like the wind. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going. He just follows what God is doing. And The the word spirit, pneuma, the breath of God, the Holy Spirit, he's the third person of the Trinity, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father and with the Son. Uh, Paul is going to begin to talk about how these things affect the spirit. And so it's important that he says, you were washed and you were justified, uh, you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of God. And that's why he says that in your life, if you continue to practice these habitual behaviors of immorality, either you are not saved or you have greatly jeopardized your salvation. Either you were never saved in the first place or you've greatly jeopardized your salvation before the Lord. And I think, you know, as you're cruising through this, you could start to say, okay, well, is that what it's about then, Paul? Is that it? It's like, okay, this is the Christian life. Here's the box. Live in it. It's a bunch of legalisms. It's a bunch of rules. And as long as I fit in the box and, you know, and follow the the laws and the rules and the legalisms and the morality of the gospel, then, um, you know, that's, that's that what Christianity is? And there were such moral issues in the church of Corinth. And, and as Paul is addressing them, dealing with some tough stuff here, it might be easy to just think that's what Christianity is. Okay, there it is. It's the set of rules, and that's what it's all about. Thinking that Paul and that those who follow Jesus live a life that's restricted by legalisms and rules and laws. And so just to make sure that people don't make that Wrong conclusion as they read 1 Corinthians, or that the church wasn't making the wrong conclusion. Paul goes on as he said and he says this in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Look, Paul says, I'm not bound by rules. And he doesn't want us to to tie us up with rules. The fact is that Jesus has set us free. Paul could say, I'm free. He he could say, all things are not lawful for me. And there should be, look at the reality is this, there should be no one so free as the Christian who follows Jesus Christ. Did you know that? The scripture says, he whom the son sets free is free indeed. We're free. And so Paul had to remind them of the freedom. He had to declare The freedom. And he said this, all things are lawful. Which means, you know, legality is not the only test that a Christian should apply to their behavior. Is it about legalisms and laws? No. The question is this, I think, that we should be asking. A good question. Is this practice helpful in my relationship with Jesus Christ? Is what I am doing helpful in my relationship with Jesus Christ? Or might this gain control over me? And Paul said, not all things are helpful. Although everything's lawful for me because I'm free, not everything's helpful. And it was for that reason that he refused to be dominated by anything or in bondage to anything, whether that be a person or an activity or a substance He said, I will not uh, compromise my freedom and my liberty in that which I've found in Jesus Christ. He said, I won't be dominated by anything, which means to have something else master me. I won't have it hold me to its will. I won't have anything else exercise authority over me or bring me under its power. You know, I was thinking about that. I mean, a a real example of that in our culture is, is, uh, in, in my mind, uh, drug abuse, substance abuse. I think about the coast, the whole pot thing. And, you know, we might ask, well, is it wrong? Is it wrong for a Christian to do that? Well, there's two questions here. Is, is it helpful? Might it gain control over me? And the reality is, is the use of drug is to do what? To gain power over the mind or the spirit or the will. Something else takes control. Something else holds you to its will. Something else exercises authority over you. Something else brings you under its power rather than the Spirit of God. Is it lawful? Well, that's for the courts to decide. But is it helpful? And as a Christian, I've been set free from the bondage to the flesh I have liberty and freedom from slavery to sin. You know, we have the most incredible liberty as as followers of Jesus Christ. We should just walk around knowing that we're free. Free. How much more free can you get than to say what Paul says? Everything's lawful for me. Everything. But, Paul said, he would not exercise that freedom in a way that would bring him back in the place of bondage. You know, imagine, so free in Christ, I can do anything I want, but I don't want to do things that enslave me because it would be foolish after being set free if I was to sell myself back to slavery. And so Paul says, I will not be brought under the power of anything. He says this in verse 13. It makes kind of a neat application. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So he circles back to this subject of sexual immorality. And as he begins to talk about that, he, he stops and he pauses and he talks about the stomach and about food for a minute. Aren't you looking forward to that, pig roast this afternoon? <laughs> you know what? I'm hungry. I eat. If it's 9.30 at night and... I'm sitting around. And I think, man, you know, that was a hard, long day. I had lots on the go. I want ice cream. I go to the freezer. If there's no ice cream, I get in the car, <laughs> and I drive to Fong's Market, and I buy haagen chocolate peanut butter ice cream. And I bring it home, and Lisa and I share it, and we don't let our kids have any. <laughs> if I want nachos, I eat Nachos. My wife makes chocolate chip cookies and she's told our children, that's it. You can have two, the rest are for tomorrow. I go and I help myself. And when my kids whine, I say, I paid for those cookies. <laughs> I bought those chocolate chips. I'll eat those darn chocolate chips cookies if I want to eat them. Paul says, food is meant for the stomach. Mmm, piggy. Bacon. The stomach for food. You know, when uh, I was over in Nanaimo a few weeks uh, back for Malice Memorial, I hooked up with my good buddy Peter and I was telling you guys about that. And, and so we had a bit of a time um, to kill before I was heading out. So we just walked around Nanaimo. We were hanging out. And we were, we were walking down some road in downtown Nanaimo and we come to this, there's this little restaurant and the sign says Deep. Fried Nanaimo bars. Peter looks at me and says, I heard about this place. Conversation was over. <laughs> we went in and we had deep fried Nanaimo bars. And I got to tell you, they were really good. They were really good because food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Now, in the Corinthian culture, they had this value, and guess what? Our culture has it too about sex. They said, it's just satisfying a physical appetite? I'm hungry, so I eat food. I want a physical intimacy, so I have sex. And, you know, if that leads me to the fridge of extramarital relations or if that leads me to the fridge of premarital sex or fornication or homosexuality or this or that, I don't care. I'm I'm just feeding an appetite. I was hungry, so I ate. Just satisfying the body's appetite for physical intimacy. And so, Paul here begins to talk about that which will last and that which won't last. He says, Look, when it's food into your stomach, that's one thing. That's not going to last. That doesn't matter in terms of eternity. That's why, you know, we were joking this morning about talking about having a vision from heaven, like Peter on the roof, and a little piggy came down from heaven. And it was lawful to eat, right? It doesn't matter, it's not eternal. But when it comes to issues of sexuality, eternity is at stake. That is what Paul is telling us here. And he says this, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Sexual immorality in this particular verse, he uses a different different Greek word. It's pornea, not pornos, pornea, and it's a blanket term. It means um, it envelops all sexual acts outside of heterosexual relations within the context of marriage, whatever it is. And Paul says, look, your body's meant for the Lord. As food is for the stomach, so the body is meant for the Lord. And what happens to food when I eat it? It's expelled. It doesn't ma- I take the nutrition and it's expelled. It doesn't matter. But that's not the case when it comes to sexual relations. Your body just doesn't take what it wants and then it's all good and it's over and it's done. Your body is meant to serve the Lord. And so what does that mean? Well, Paul says it this way. Look at verse 14. He says, and God raised the Lord and will also raise up by his power. Do you not know? There's that line again. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her, becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Here's the issue. When I eat food, my body takes what it needs and the rest is expelled. When it involves sex, Paul says one flesh. It becomes something that is fixed forever and he says do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ see since our bodies belong to Jesus Christ he's Lord he's supposed to rule here in this heart because because he's Lord I involve him in everything I do where I click on the computer and where I go and this and that Jesus is there Understand that Jesus is there and he's present in everything that you do, every situation. So Paul says, would I do this? Oh, God forbid, he says. Never. I don't want Jesus there. He says, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her in body? See, sex, physical intimacy involves not just the coming together of two bodies, but it involves the coming together of two souls. It's not just the satisfaction of appetite for intimacy. It's the coming together of the soul. It involves the very essence of a person. It involves that which belongs to God, actually. And that's why God has created a context for two bodies, two souls. To come together in a context where there's safety, where there's protection, where he is honored, even praised, I would say. Where human needs for intimacy are met, and it's called marriage. And you know, kids are taught in school, and here and there, we hear about the practice of safe, safe sex. That's because the world understands sex is dangerous. You know, STDs, STIs, All that stuff, but it's dangerous for more reasons than beyond that. It's dangerous because it involves your soul. It involves your soul. Not just your body, but your soul. The very essence of who you are. And the only safe place for sex is in marriage because Paul says the two become one flesh. They're joined together. The Greek word means this, glued. Glued. And interesting, as I was looking at it, it's in the present tense, which means once it's done, it's done, glued. You know, I would say that's why there can be so much trauma for people in those areas of their life where they can, you know, there can be struggles, there can be issues because glued. And the only place for healing is in the Lord. And Jesus can meet you in that place. He can heal you there. And so Paul says the two become one flesh, but he says in verse 17, he says this important word, but. Which means, you know, let me give you a contrast here, an important contrast, a distinction he's going to make. And he says this, verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Again, that word joined is glued together, it's uh, in the present tense. And he says, uh, when you're joined to the Lord, you become one spirit. Remember that word, Lord, master, the person to whom everything belongs. He who holds the power to decide the title of God. You become glued to the Lord. And he says, you become glued to him in one spirit. There's that word pneuma, breath, wind, spirit. And it's interesting that when you're involved in sex, you're glued in one body. But when you're joined in the Lord, you're glued and joined in one spirit, Paul says. One spirit. That's greater than becoming one in the flesh. Because as you follow Jesus, the spirit exercises and rules over the flesh, over the body. The spirit speaks of the source of power that governs over one's body. And so he says, be joined to the Lord. This means that when you're joined to the Lord, the spirit of God himself begins to uh Work his rule in your life and over how the body functions in this world. I think about the moving of the spirit. He He moves like the wind, the breath of God, the Holy Spirit. It's a picture of freedom. And Paul says you experience freedom when you're joined to the Lord. See, before Christ, like God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a triune being. You and I are made in his image. We're, we're a smaller version of the Trinity. Body, soul, and spirit. And before Christ, the body ruled. The appetites of the body ruled. In fact, my spirit was dead, the scripture said. And I was a slave and ruled by my body and whatever it desired. But then when Christ came into my life and he set me free from bondage of sin and and forgave me, the order got messed around and the body became at the bottom and the spirit moved to the top so that it's spirit, soul, and then body. And when we are joined to the Lord, the spirit rules over the body. That is why sexual behavior will change when you follow Jesus Christ. Paul He's telling us that totally clear. He says, don't you know if you do this, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. The behavior will change. And it's not something that is manufactured by your efforts or this. It's something that God does in you because the spirit is ruling. And so we learn to bring our bodies to the Lord. And as Paul says in Romans, we present our bodies as a sacrifice to God a living sacrifice that he would be honored in our body. Be joined to the Lord. Be joined to the Lord, and the Spirit will rule over your body. And that's why if there's sexual immorality in your life, Paul can say, it tells you something about your relationship with the Lord. It's a mirror right in your face telling you something about your walk with Jesus Christ. And so he says in verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. is flee. Man, that is worth underlining right there. Flee sexual immorality. Be saved by flight. You know, like a bird. Think of that picture of the spirit. Like a bird on the wind. Whew. Get out of there, man. Flee it. Seek safety by flight. Escape the danger. See, sexual immorality involves sinning against your own body, which is interesting. It's the only sin that you can commit, not just against God, but against yourself. It's a sin that's more destructive than some sins when we engage in it because that kind of immorality cannot be undone, glued one flesh. It involves placing the body, which is the Lord's, under the control of another, which is an illegitimate practice outside of the context of marriage. It is idolatry. Solomon a man who understood these things, said this, He who commits adultery lacks sense. He destroys himself. And so Paul says, flee sexual morality." You know, the picture I think of when I think of that is Joseph, right? You know the story of Joseph. Sold into slavery by his brothers. Purchased by the household of Potiphar to be a slave in that man's house. And God blessed him. He, raised the, he was raised to prominence within the house of Potiphar until he became the slave in charge of all the other slaves and all the operations day to day of the house. So that the master had no concerns about how his house would operate. One day when Potiphar was away on an extended business trip, his wife, who had taken a shine for young Joseph, invited him to come to bed with her. And Joseph said, "Uh uh-uh. I will not, I don't want to sin against the Lord in such a way. And so the scripture tells us that when she was around, he did his flea moves. He got out of there. He did things so that he wasn't in her presence or around her or around the area of the house uh, where she was. But when you think about it, the reality is this. Joseph had freedom. He had an invitation, come to bed with me. Uh, Nobody would have really known what had happened. The master wouldn't have known. He might have even had an appetite that needed to be satisfied for physical intimacy. But he said this, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against the Lord? That was the statement of his life. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against the Lord? Even more greater, the sin against himself or against Potiphar was that he would sin against the Lord in doing so. And so he avoided her. Until one day, she caught him alone in a room and she grabbed hold of him and said, come to bed with me. And you know the story. He fled, leaving behind his coat. He got out of there. See, his heart was for God, and it even ruled over his appetite for physical intimacy and sexual experience. And so Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. Verse 19. Or do you not know? There's the last do you not know, number six. I think it's the last one. Yeah, it is. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. It says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Earlier in this book, he talked about the body as the temple of the Holy Spirit, speaking about the corporate body, us together. Now he's speaking individually. You know, over the history of the people of Israel, there are two occasions when their enemy came and destroyed their temple. One was the Babylonian Empire, 586. King Nebuchadnezzar came and he destroyed the temple. He burned it. He took all the items out of there and and leveled it. The second time was in AD 70. 70, the, The Roman general Titus came and he destroyed the second temple, flattened it and leveled it off. Why did they do so? In terms of laying siege to a nation and trying to crush their independence and their identity, the enemy came and destroyed the temple so that the nation would be rendered ineffective. And you and I have an enemy. Satan, he, he wants to destroy your temple. He wants to destroy the temple of God. Because if he can destroy the temple, he can make you ineffective and unproductive for the kingdom of God. He can make you ineffective in your service to God. And if you get involved in immorality, then he has rendered you ineffective to serve. How many Samsons have had their strength cut off? How many Solomons have had their hearts turned away? How many would-be Samsons had their, their hair cut off and they've lost their power Because of sexual immorality in their life, it brought a demise. And Paul says, Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He lives within you. He is from God. He is God. And there is power in purity, there is blessing in purity. God blesses purity, He blesses it when His people obey His design. Paul even says this as he talks about this. You are not your own. That's a strong statement too. That is worth underlining in your Bibles. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. You were purchased. You were were paid for. You were obtained. Jesus procured you. The one who loves you acquired you. You were bought with a price. He fixed value to you. Imagine that. God fixed value to you. There might be people in your life who who did not value you, who did not affix value to you, but God fixed value to you because he loved you. Because you're his creation. He bought you with a price. It's a simple fact. You were bought with a price. God bought you for a price, not just because he valued you, but, but because the wages of sin is death. And the scripture says that to redeem you from death, a life had to be given in your place, a substitute. What was the price? We know the price. The precious blood of a spotless lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ who gave his life on the cross for our sins. There's nothing cheap about the cross. It costs God everything to purchase you. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so Paul says this, glorify God with your body. Glorify God with your body. He says there's... There's an obligation on us. Y- you were purchased with the blood of Jesus. Therefore, glorify God with your body. What a neat thought. You know what you think about it? God can be glorified by this body. You know? gravity setting in. <laughs> hairline's disappearing. God can be glorified in this body. Not by what the world puts its values in but by the purity of a heart that wants to serve God. God can be glorified. That word glorify means praised, extolled, magnified, honor. It means to impart glory to God, to render him as excellent. In your body, make him renowned. Cause dignity to be ascribed to him because you live purely for him. Not because of legalism, but because you belong to him. You know, all throughout this letter to the Corinthians, Paul has pointed this church in regards to issues of identity and their morality, and every time he's pointed them to the exact same solution. All through the letter, he says, You got to return to the cross. You got to return to the cross. And again, he takes us there as he wraps up this little chapter. He says, You're bought with a price. The reason why there's immorality, you've forgotten the cross. You have forgotten the cross, and you need to come back to the cross and repent. Return to the cross. You know, I think about the appetite for food or the appetite for physical intimacy. You know what we need an appetite for? The Lord. May God give us an appetite for him. Let's pray. Would you guys stand with me? I'm going to invite the worship team to come.